standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to this week's Sunday Chops. Hope the weather is nice where you are. And by that I mean not suffocatingly hot. I bring up the weather so I sound all caring about your weekend. But also because it intervenes quite a lot in this week's Chops. Given there was a near biblical storm over Cambridge when I did the interview. So that explains a lot of the rumbling and crashing you will probably hear in the background. And maybe it explains why my Wi-Fi was iffy for a few minutes in the middle of it. Is that caused by weather? I don't know. It was probably caused by everyone rushing into the street to video it and upload it on Twitter. Either way, apologies that it is a little choppy. But like I say, it only lasts a few minutes. Not even the gods of thunder can stop us talking about women's history. So enough of that. Let's get to the meat of it. This week I chat to Anna Evis. Curatorial Director of English Heritage, which means she is in charge of London's Blue Plaque Scheme. And she tells us about their attempts to put up more blue plaques celebrating and commemorating women, which, given they rely on nominations from the general public, is where you might be able to help. We're also joined by Dr Hannah Rose Murray from the University of Edinburgh, who nominated one of the women being honoured this year, Ellen Craft. We talk about Ellen's incredible life and a little bit about Frederick Douglass, who is obviously a man, but a mighty impressive individual nonetheless. I'm going to let you just get on with listening to that. But like Columbo, let me wander back in to say that if you're going online to nominate a woman for a blue plaque, maybe swing by iTunes and write us a quick five star review. Because a bit like the amount of water you spill can be oddly disproportionate to the amount that is missing from the glass. The value to us of you writing a five-star review seems oddly disproportionate to the five minutes it will take you to do it. So thank you. Until next time. Hi, I am joined on the Zoom by Anna Evis. Hello, Anna. Hi there. Anna is the Curatorial Director at English Heritage and part of that job includes the overseeing of the Blue Plaque Project, I am also joined by Hannah Rose Murray. Hello. Who is up at the University of Edinburgh, who nominated Ellen Craft to the scheme. Ellen is one of six women to be honoured with a blue plaque this year. Thank you both for joining me. We're Anna's and Hannah's all over the place. It's going to be ever so confusing. Anna, can we just start with the basics? What is a blue plaque? Where do you find one who is remembered by them? The first important thing to say is that English Heritage, who who I work for, we're only responsible for a scheme in London. So this is a London blue plaque scheme. And it's thought to be the first of its kind anywhere in the world. So over 150 years ago, a Liberal MP had the bright idea that it would be great to make a connection between important historical figures and the London buildings in which they lived or worked. So this was really about if you like, establishing London's credentials and connecting important people from the past to the buildings themselves. It's a really simple idea. And like lots of simple ideas, it's proved a really popular one. And we think that many of the plaque schemes that exist all over the world today, and there are many others in the UK, actually kind of based on this, this was the first one. Now, the the scheme simply consists of a blue plaque, which is circular, over a foot in diameter attached to the wall of a building and on the plaque is a little bit of information about the person we're commemorating or celebrating and the important thing for us is that that person has a connection to the building. There are currently about 950 plaques on the walls of London buildings 
and those have been put up over 150 years. English Heritage has run the scheme since the 1980s and we put up 12 new plaques every year. Great. I've got some facts here from what happened when you took over. When you took over in 1986, and bear in mind this is a scheme that's been running since 1866, there were only 45 plaques that were dedicated to women. And since then, 60% of the plaques that you've put up have been dedicated to women. How do you go about finding which women, bearing in mind they've been ignored for such a long time, how do you go about picking a woman for a plaque? The first thing to say is that the, the scheme is driven by public nomination. So we don't come up with the names ourselves. But we ask the public to send in their suggestions so anybody can nominate somebody for a plaque. What happens is that people send in their suggestions. We get over 100 suggestions a year, but we can only put up 12 so we have, a, we have an expert panel made up of people from outside of English heritage who actually choose which person gets a plaque. And we provide that panel with some historical information about each, each person. Now, it's an interesting one, really, this, because, because the scheme has been running for so long and because when it was set up, women had no role in public life, really. It was very, you know, it was very rare to find a woman in public life. In a way, I suppose it's inevitable that initially at least women were commemorated far less than men. But we feel that that's something that we know things should be better nevertheless. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what we've been doing since I took over the scheme, or I took over to have responsibility for the scheme since 2015, was actually, although great efforts had been made to commemorate women with plaques, the percentage overall, of course, is still very small. You know, it's only 14% or something. So what we have been doing is actually a lot of campaigning, press work, encouraging the public to send in nominations for women. Because when I started, very small proportion of the nominations we were receiving were for women. So that's the crucial thing. It's making sure that the panel of experts have a really good crop of nominations for women and and that those nominations make up a higher proportion of the whole. Now, where we've got to now is the great position, you know, that we get roughly half and half. In fact, probably now at the moment, we're getting slightly more nominations for women than for men. So it means that the panel, they don't really have to think about that. You know, they don't have to think about gender. What they are looking at is a really good crop of excellent nominations, all of which are, you know, are strong. And I think that, you know, and that does seem to work well. You know, we're actually now shortlisting. They are selecting at least 50% of the nominations for women now. One of the women that nominated, or one of the people that nominated our woman was Hannah Rose. You nominated Ellen Craft successfully. And maybe I can get some tips off you for writing a successful nomination later. Can you tell us a little bit, for people who don't know who Ellen Craft is, a little bit of her story and what it was about her that you thought this woman needs commemorating? Well, it sounds like an exaggeration to say, but I think that Ellen Craft is one of the most courageous and inspiring women from history. She was born into US chattel slavery just outside of Macon in Georgia in 1826 to her mother, Maria Smith, and her enslaver, Major James Smith. So essentially, Ellen was a child of of rape. From a very early age, she could 
pass for white. So there's this incredibly complicated and dangerous situation which she found herself in. She was forced to work in the house in the plantation. You know, this unimaginable position. She was forced to work in the house with this constant threat of, of rape and sexual violence. She married her husband, William, in 1846. And the couple determined that they would not have children in slavery because obviously because of that uh, brutal and cruel institution, their children would be ripped and seized away from them at a moment's notice. God, it's unthinkable, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. And they, they made this courageous decision to essentially escape in 1848, prompted by that determination not to to bring up their, their children. Again, if they if they had girls themselves, there is that constant threat of rape and sexual violence. And that led to this incredibly brave and bold escape attempt where Ellen essentially crossed the boundaries of, of race, gender, class, even physical ability to dress and perform as a white Southern man in a costume. So she had a, a top hat, spectacles, cravat, clothes in which she made herself. She was an expert seamstress. And she performed this disguise that she would perform as a white man. Her husband, William, would pose as this white man called William Johnson. He would be William Johnson's enslaved manservant. And they would essentially travel all the way from Georgia uh, in the south to to Philadelphia in, in Pennsylvania, even in the northern states. And it seems like a really simple thing to say, but this was an incredibly bold and risky Thing to do. If they had been caught, they would have been arrested, tortured, almost certainly sold separately away from each other, never to see each other again. And because of the nature of enslavement and also the disguise in itself. So one of the things about this disguise is Ellen wears a bandage over her right arm because if you were enslaved in the South, it was punishable by torture or death if you learned to read and write. So she had to disguise the fact that she was unable to read and write so she couldn't sign her name for railway tickets and steamboat tickets to make this really perilous journey outside the county, the state, which they had never ventured out to before. And the whole journey took them four days. But they eventually managed to reach the, the safety, the relative safety of the north in, in Philadelphia. And they eventually settled in Boston for a short period of time. That's incredible. Now I can see why English Heritage went, oh, yes, please, to, uh, to a plaque to Ellen Craft. Where is it? And when is it, Anna? I mean, it is a wonderful story and you haven't even heard the whole story yet. So, so um, <laughs> it, it is incredible, absolutely. And as you say, it wasn't difficult to make the decision. The You know, it was a yes, yes, please to this one. The plaque is in what's now called Cambridge Grove in Hammersmith. And it's a dwelling in which the crafts, because they, because they came to London and, and Hannah Rose might talk a bit about that, but they it's where they lived. It's thought that they were living there by 1860 and they lived there until they returned to the States in 1869. Now, now, what's worth saying about this is that one of the challenges of, of, the, of the concept, if you like, that you're linking a person to a building can be that it's very difficult to find evidence of residence or association mm-hmm. with a building, particularly for classes of people who are marginalised, they're poor. So it can be tricky. So actually, it was really great that you know that we were able to to tie them to this to this house in Hammersmith. So yes, how how then did they end up in Hammersmith, Hannah Rose? 
Well, as Anna was saying, there's so much of this story and it's really difficult to try and condense Anna's amazing <laughs> life in a very short podcast. But they settled in Boston and Massachusetts for a short period of time. They essentially weren't safe in Boston because their former enslavers sent slave catchers to try and drag them back down into slavery. So they escaped to England and they stayed here for nearly 20 years, you know, mainly in London, uh, as, as Anna was saying. They raised five children here in freedom. They were incredibly active in social reform circles. So Ellen was actively going to anti-slavery meetings across the country. She was participating in other reform meetings as well, like the suffrage movement too, while based in London. She was part of abolitionist protests, both on the anti-slavery platform and outside anti-slavery circles as well. And in one of my favorite stories about her, in 1852, she hears a rumour that was being circulated by her former enslaver on both sides of the Atlantic, where he was essentially saying that Ellen had become bored of freedom and she actually wanted to go back into slavery. So she writes this incredibly powerful letter that was published again on both sides of the Atlantic, where she says, I would rather starve a free woman than be a slave, the best man that ever breathed upon the American continent. It's a really, really powerful letter. And, you know, throughout her time in, in London and, and also Britain, so in, particularly in, in the London um, space and in the Hammersmith home, you know, she turns that home into a hub of black activism. She invites fellow black lecturers like Sarah Parker Remond, who was very active in London during that time to stay. She was instrumental in orchestrating the rescue of other freedom fighters and survivors of US slavery, including her own mother. The, the two women had a really emotional reunion at King's Cross together. She aids her husband, William, in raising money to try and purchase some of his family members from slavery, legally purchasing them from slavery, I should say. And, you know, she, while she's in London, she attends private and aristocratic parties. She's very much a celebrity, really, in London at that time. But she goes to these parties and she challenges white racists or people who were, you know, making very racist comments about people of African descent. And, you know, in that, in that year, Anna mentioned 1860, they actually published their, their narrative. So running a thousand miles for freedom, this really inspiring autobiographical narrative that's only published here in London. It's not actually published in the US, which is quite rare for these so-called slave narratives. Usually they're either published in the US or published on both sides of the Atlantic. And it recounts their incredible story and the heroism of, of both William and Ellen Craft, but obviously particularly Ellen, because that whole escape mm. completely rests on her bravery and her performance. And she is very much a part of, of London social life, but also reform life as well. She's such an incredibly powerful figure for, for lots of different social reform causes. And just to say very briefly as well, when William and Ellen Craft go back to the US, they actually settle in Georgia again, and they are constantly fighting for, for freedom and for the freedom of other people of colour as well. They create and, and organise a farm that's actually burned down by the KKK in the early 1870s. So she has just such an extraordinary life that is completely dedicated to the whole of the freedom struggle. Because she obviously returns to America after the Emancipation Declaration, after the Civil War. But it wasn't over at that point, was it? It wasn't like she moved back into a society that had... Well, it had changed, but had it really changed? I mean, the post-Civil War period in America is exceptionally interesting. Yeah, exactly. And my research actually looks at black freedom fighters who travelled to Britain throughout the 19th century to inform British and Irish audiences 
about slavery, racism, white supremacy, and essentially those freedom fighters are still coming to Britain to inform audiences about that, the realities of that post-emancipation mm. in inverted commas life because African-Americans face uh, white domestic terrorism as the crafts did from, from you know, white supremacist groups like the KKK. But they're, they're also facing segregation, Jim Crow, lynching, all of these you know, incredibly violent problems that are plaguing not only just the US South, but really across the whole of the US. And again, freedom fighters were coming over here to, to lecture British audiences even after the crafts had gone home. Ellen is not only an example of someone who's missing from history because she's a woman, but also because she's a woman of colour. Now, when you're looking at women, presumably that is also in the back of your mind that there are underrepresented groups, women of colour, women in the disability community, in the LGBT community, etc., etc. That nonetheless makes it quite a hard job for you. I mean, I know last year... Nor Inyat Khan was given a blue plaque. She was, if people don't know who she is, they should find out. But she was also one of the people in the Netflix film uh, A Call to Spy. So a big year for her last year, 70 odd years after her death. How are you working to make sure that you're not just getting women, you're getting a fair representation of a, of, of, of across society of women? I mean, again, it's we're driven by public nomination, so we kind of we we kind of putting it out there that we're keen yeah. for you know keen for nominations, and actually, just so I can mention this, you know, the, the criteria for 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 a nomination to be considered is that somebody needs to have been dead for twenty years, they need to have done something that has contributed to human welfare or happiness, and there needs to be a London building associated with them. So that's kind of it's quite broad. Now you're quite right. I mean, if if you know if women are badly served, then you start looking at the the proportion of historic figures of let's say black or Asian minority ethnic origin. It's tiny. And a few years ago, we were simply getting no nominations for people of colour at all, for example. So again, we've actually been working with some advisors and again doing. PR really to try and encourage nominations from those groups and so again for the last couple of years for the first time in a very long time we've been able to include some plaques every year to people of colour. It's an ongoing campaign and um, it is something that we're you know we're very mindful of you know London is such a has such a diverse history doesn't it I mean it's a city that's you know I know it's a hackneyed phrase but it has been a melting pot for for generations. And so it is really important that what we're saying about the people of the past actually does bear some relation to people's lived experience. But it's, I would say it's an ongoing campaign to encourage nominations for as wide a range of people as possible. Okay, well, let's just stop and do that now, then. If someone's listening to this, and they have a a heroine that they would like to nominate who does come from one of those communities, and who does fit your criteria... Two questions. How do they go about doing it, Anna? And I suppose, Hannah Rose, how do you go about making sure that you're putting forward the best possible nomination that you can for these women? The English Heritage website. So if you just look for English Heritage blue plaques, there's a whole section on the website about blue plaques, which which incidentally provides all sorts of interesting stories about our blue plaque holders. And now every time we've put 
up a new plaque, we always include an online profile and there's some great content on there. But there is a section of the, uh, there's a page on how to nominate somebody. So you actually you simply sort of you know, download a form or fill it in and send it off. How did you write that irresistible pitch? You had a lot <laughs> well, to work with, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> I had a lot to work with. And, you know, the, the form is, again, too small to convey all of Ellen's achievements, really. But I think my advice to anyone would be to to write with passion. You know, and if you're nominating someone for a plaque it's likely that you're already there because it's you know a little bit of work to obviously fill in the application form but to writing with passion is so important because you know and maybe Anna will agree but that's that's how you capture people's attention and conveying the most important parts of their life and and why they had such a strong impact on Britain or the transatlantic sphere in general I guess and 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 why they had such an important impact on, on London and there are so many people of colour and women of colour out there that deserve a heritage plaque uh, in London and, of course, all the way around the UK. So uh, there shouldn't be a, a shortage of applications anymore, I would say. I'd, I'd agree with that. And I think a really important point to mention is that we can deal with quite recent history. So mm. somebody needs to be dead for 20 years. That's not very long. So what that means is that there actually are, as time goes on, an increasing number of women an increasing number of women of colour who have been able to achieve. So that we're not just talking about, somebody like Ellen Craft is is an extraordinary, unique kind of, I mean, not completely unique, but, you know, very, she's a, she's a campaigner. She, she, she was extraordinarily brave. She seems to have responded to her situation in a mo- with the kind of most unimaginable courage and so on. And there are women like that in the 19th century. You know, but but as time goes on, if you look at the 20th century and particularly the post-war period, mm. there is a there's a growing number of women across all sorts of fields who have done really interesting things. And so, I suppose what I would add to your to your listeners is actually don't don't feel you have to look 200 years ago. You know, it could be somebody who did something amazing in the 50s or the 60s. And you know, the plaques we have put up this year to women actually span 200 years. You know, Ellen is one of the earlier ones. We did also put up a plaque to Caroline Norton, who was born in 1808. Mm. Ellen was born in 1826. But, you know, we put up a plaque a couple of weeks ago to Jean Muir, the dress designer, you know, who was working, really working in the 60s and 70s. So there's, there's, I think there's an incredibly rich scene there for commemorating women from the, you know, from the quite recent past. And in doing so, actually giving visibility to the changing place of women in society. It's not perfect, but actually it's now possible for women to be far more active in public life, to be far more visible, to achieve great things in a way that was much more difficult 200 years ago. That's really interesting. You're also hampered in some cases by a lack of a property still existing, whereas that's maybe not going to happen so much now then we're not we're not clearing slums and and the only notable building you could link a person to is no longer there that's true and when we put up the plaque to Jean Muir, for instance we put it up at Bruton Street which was where she had her business her showroom that's where her company was based so that's quite interesting Mm. that actually you get to a point where actually you can attach a plaque to a woman's place of work by which I mean her showroom it's very much her place so I feel that the you know the blue plaques which 
are the, you know, it's the simplest approach to free public history you can imagine, taken in their entirety, they they actually tell a really interesting story about social and economic change mm. and political change, you know, as, as, you know, as well as other things. Well, that actually leads really nicely to the question that I have coming next, which is school holidays are here. People may have concerns about being inside for various reasons because of coronavirus, but also, you know, people might not have a huge amount of money to spend on going to see certain things. If people have got their kids in London, it is an excellent free, like you say, it's a free history lesson. Do you have some resources of where these or people can find out where particular plaques are that perhaps they could take their their girls to go and see them and their boys, but predominantly their girls? It's very important that, yeah, quite, quite. Um, we have an app. There's, so there's an app that you can download which tells you where all the plaques are. And as I said, a really good place to start would be the English Heritage website because, you know, you can every single plaque that we have is listed on that website with a location. And it's possible to kind of put together, you can see where it is. It shows you where nearby plaques are. If you, you know, you can put together a little walk of plaques in your area. I mean, I, you know, I feel it's a really interesting way actually to get children interested in you know, not just the great names, not just the, you know, the names in central London, but actually who in your area might have a plaque. And when we put up a few years ago, um, I'm afraid he wasn't a woman, but anyway, Freddie Mercury, we put up a plaque to Freddie Mercury, which is in Feltham. That was the first plaque that had gone up in Feltham under our scheme. And, you know, that's, that's really important, I think, that, that actually the scheme is not just thinking about extending breadth in terms of you know diversity and and so on but actually breadth geographical breadth you know yeah, that's really yeah. important i mean we're 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 working within you know the, the 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 greater london area but it's not all just bloomsbury you know there's there's more yeah because obviously we're putting six plaques up to women mm. this year so just a little bit of more about that because it's this thing again about what the passage of time tells us and how things are changing so the plaques we're putting up this year to women span 200 years they include a couple of real hero campaigners of the 19th century Ellen Craft being one but Caroline Norton being the other and Caroline mm. Norton was a woman who made a bad marriage she was a writer she was unfortunate in the man she married and she discovered to her cost that when things got bad, acted very, very badly, he took away her children and she had no rights at all over her children or over her own earned income. Mm. So he creamed mm. off everything. And, and she was a very active campaigner in trying to ensure that married women had rights to their own property. Now, this is a kind of hugely significant moment. And certainly as a married woman myself, I feel I owe her a great debt. You know, I thought I was working for my husband to take all my dosh. And, you know, I mean, that, you know, it's now, you know, it feels it's a given. But so in the six women this year, we have these two really important campaigners. What then happens, the other four women are all from the 20th century, they include a scientist, a barrister, the first ever female barrister, Jean Muir, dressmaker, we talked about, and Princess Diana. Now, particularly for those first three, Lonsdale, the scientist, Normanton, the lawyer, and Muir, the dress designer, they are active in the early years of the 20th century. They are all educated. That's mm. one really important point. 
So that means that they are then equipped and supported in going into different professions. Now, Kathleen Lonsdale, the scientist I mentioned, who was able to pursue her research and her career because one of her colleagues who was leading the research team, an enlightened man, found funds to provide her with domestic help. So she had children, she was married, mm -hmm. but he got funds to help her to, to go out and, and work. And these, these are the changes which I think are so interesting. And yeah. so that when we talk about plaques for women, we're on a journey, aren't we? And we're yeah. just thinking about the way in which life is changing. So when is Ellen being unveiled? Are you coming down to look at it, Hannah Rose, when that happens? I'd love to. I think Anna can correct me, but sometime in, in autumn, again, fingers crossed, depending on the, the COVID situation, but definitely I'd, I'd love to be there in person. We've had to be a, a little bit cautious over the last 12 months, as you can imagine. And so we've actually had very few unveiling events. So normally we, when we put a plaque up, we invite you know the proposer, in this case, Hannah Rose, to come and watch. And we've had to be a little bit more circumspect, but um, certainly if we're doing an event, she'll be top of the list for to be invited and they're very special occasions they're odd because they happen on the pavement so there's a way in which they are in, inevitably a bit informal because often you can't close the road you've usually usually there will be some building work going on nearby it may it's often raining you know there'll be cars kind of coming past everybody rubbernecking and there'll be some press there and people all kind of trying to cling onto the pavement so there's a so it's always a, a little bit unexpected but what's great is when we get speakers who really know their subjects, normally we ask people to say a few words. For instance, we, Antonia Fraser, who'd just written a biography of Caroline Norton, came to unveil at the plaque we put up to her a, a couple of months ago. What was really great about the Jean Muir unveiling was that we had a great coterie of women who'd all worked for her. Oh, and, so, and they were all talking about you know, about what it, what it was like to work with her or for her. And Joanna Lumley had been a house model for Muir and she came and did the, you know, she pulled the cord, you know, unveiled it. She spoke about what it was like to be an impoverished model, you know, turning up in her tragic underwear, you know, putting on this, these extraordinary clothes. And I think when you have that kind of connection to somebody and crucially, somebody who can talk about the building. I mean, Hannah Rose was talking just now about, mm. you know, about the way in which the crafts kind of made the home a centre for black activism. I mean, that when you're looking at the bricks and mortar and you've got somebody who can bring that to life, you know, behind those walls, you know, something amazing happened. Mm. And, and that's what the whole thing is about. You know, the scheme is about peopling the historic fabric with layers of historical you know historic figures you know mm. and that that's really exciting yeah i'm sorry i don't know if you heard that but there was just the most amazing roll of thunder here i think i think something <laughs> huge is about to kick off in the sky over cambridge <laughs> hannah rose there was something that i wanted to ask you i noticed that you are the co-author of a really interesting looking book about frederick Douglass and his time in Ireland, which links to this is time in Ireland and England. And I wondered if we could talk about that a bit, because I can remember, I mean, as the name probably suggests, my family originally come from Ireland. So I'm really interested in Irish history and I am a borderline obsessed by American history. I think anyone who says that America has no history is just not looking hard enough. But I remember being just genuinely amazed the first time I realised that Daniel O'Connell 
and Frederick Douglass were essentially friends and that they communicated with each other. And it's interesting because you see Douglass more as a young man then and he's in our head as an older man. I think nowadays we have this idea that social media has connected us, which it has, but we kind of then have this idea that we weren't connected before social media. And I think Frederick Douglass really is the perfect example of someone who really disproves that theory. Can can you tell us a little bit more about his time in the UK? Yeah, so Frederick Douglass was the most famous freedom fighter and survivor of US slavery in the 19th century. He travelled to Britain and Ireland between 1845 and 1847. He did actually come back two more times in 1859 to 1860 and again in 1886 for a short period of time, although the third visit was more of a sort of honeymoon um, with his second wife, Helen Pitts. But he was an absolute sensation in Ireland and across Britain. He spoke about the realities and brutalities of enslavement. He spoke about the racism he experienced. He collaborated with abolitionists and reformists and influential figures, again, like Daniel O'Connell. He actually shared a platform with Daniel O'Connell during one speech in Dublin in 1845. He worked with other freedom fighters in the UK and, you know, he was part of a circle of activists in in England that were very, very active in trying to campaign for the end of slavery in the US. And a lot of the abolitionists that he worked with went on to work with William and Ellen Crafts, for example, um, you know, part of these, these same circles, like George Thompson, the English MP and abolitionist being one of them. George Thompson worked very closely with Frederick Douglass and Douglass actually stayed in George Thompson's house in South Kensington in London. And there's a, actually a heritage plaque on, uh, on, that, on the side of that building led by Jack Bueller and his Nubian Jack Community Trust plaques. But he, yeah, Douglas was an absolute sensation in both Ireland and England uh, and in Scotland in his one speech in Wales as well, because he was such a, an incredible performer and orator and really could encourage his audiences to essentially become abolitionists themselves and to, to realise their own privilege as predominantly white audiences, but to also understand the um, incredible violence that, or try to understand the incredible violence that happened on a day-to-day basis on, on plantations. And the one thing that Douglas did talk about in a lot of his lectures, he touched upon how religious institutions and churches, mainly in the South, but actually across the whole of the US, actually supported or sanctioned US slavery. And mm-hmm. that was a violence that he saw that as a violence because Douglas was a deeply religious man, but he believed that Christianity and enslavement were obviously completely incompatible. And that was one of the things that he touched on when he was in, in Ireland, when he was speaking in Dublin and Cork and Waterford, and also when he was here in, in London as well, uh, in England and Edinburgh too. Excellent. Where can people find out more? What is your book called? And I'm guessing all good bookshops. <laughs> yes, yeah, so the, the book I've published with John uh, McKivigan is called Frederick Douglass in Britain and Ireland. You can find that online. The, there's a brilliant book that I want to plug by Barbara McCaskill, which is called Love, Liberation and Escaping Slavery. And that is specifically about William and Ellen Craft. I also have a website called www.frederickdouglasinbritain.com, which actually traces not only Douglas, but William and Ellen Craft as well. And other freedom fighters like Moses Roper, Ida B. Wells Barnett others who were coming to Britain and Ireland and I've essentially tried to map where they were speaking. So there's a map on there that you can actually find out where 
William Craft in particular was giving lectures all the way around the UK and then often Alan um, you know, went with him and participated in those meetings. Terrific. That sounds absolutely fascinating. Thank you to both of you for your time. This has been super interesting. Terrific. Um, I am going to call an end to this because my Wi-Fi, I don't know if you've noticed, my Wi-Fi started to slip because I think that, yeah, whatever is going on out there is, is starting to affect me. This has been absolutely terrific. Thank you both so much for your time. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And, and Hannah Rose, it's really nice to meet you. Standard Issue for All Women.